0: I'm a janitor at the Louvre. The artwork that I clean, they're worth millions. Next Friday, a foundation will put a necklace up for auction. The necklace belonged to Marie Antoinette. We're gonna steal it. Go in as janitors and come out millionaires. Any questions? While we're risking our asses, what are you doing? Who, me? I'm buying the necklace. At your age, i love to read. Your grandfather gave it to me. I think you'll like it. Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. I found something It's incredible. A classic adventure of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Lupin. Also the method, the panache, the style, the talent. What's next, D'Artagnan of the Three Little Pigs? 25 years, I believe my father was a thief. I grew up with that. 25 years ago, he framed my dad. Come on. Let go of me. You want revenge on Pellegrini? Who gon' stop me in my moment? This is all a game, Inspector. When I'm going? A game with rules, break me, back and I'm the one who makes them. Like a king. Me That's my exactly my right plan. You underestimated me. You didn't look at me. You saw me, but you didn't really look.
1: bienvenue. casting with my wife, sexy, Brian Allen Hill at Dean mes amis, how are you? <laughs> I just so butchered that. I don't even care though, because I'm so into it right now. I am. Pretty just... impressive.
2: You got it. A... That's pretty impressive. Well done. <laughs>
1: No, uh, hopefully people out there can call into our new, what's our new thing? You guys the call-in?
2: Yeah, it's called Speak Pipe. So if you go to our uh, website, go to uh, killercastingpod.com, right there under the contact page, you will see a little icon you can click. And, in fact, we've got a recording coming up in just a moment from a listener. And, yeah, you can just record a message and it comes to us in your voice and uh, we'll drop you into the pod with your suggestions or critiques or uh, <laughs> things that you think we should. We probably won't play the critiques, but, <laughs> but no, but suggestions <laughs> on things we could cover and film and TV and so forth, feel free to reach out and talk to us and we'll put you on the pod.
1: Yes, friends. So I tried to look up how to say casting director in French, and it was very convoluted on how to do so. So please give us a call. Let us know how how it's supposed to be said. But anyway, if you didn't speak French or you couldn't tell what I was saying, this is Killer Casting. And we are gonna dive in. I have my croissant. I have my uh, chateau de neuf. I've got my brie. I've got everything because I am all in on this hybrid heist crime I don't know what to call it. This new show that has exploded on Netflix called Lupin, uh, starring Omar Sy, who, if you haven't seen Omar Sy in the movie The Intolerables which came out in 2011. It's a French movie. Uh, you, you've got to see it. It's just lovely. And it was remade, you know, many years later, starring Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. But um, the original movie is, he's wonderful in it. And it's a great um, primer for what he does as the lead in the show Lupin. So I asked The Beast to take a look at it. And uh, I want to break it down. I want to break down the, the very first episode. We're going to go with a lot to talk about how to set it up and, and what it is. And then broad strokes over the rest of it so
3: you won't be spoiled very much. Uh,
1: okay, so what did you guys think? Just quick hits, quick hits.
3: Uh, I think Omar Sy is uh, remarkably charming. And I
2: think he's in a deeply flawed uh, structure. Okay, Dean? Yeah, no, I found it very compelling. He is incredibly watchable. I haven't seen him in anything before, but he just he's, looks like I should have. You know, he's just so composed and it looks like I, sh- I should know him. And when I looked him up, I'm like, well, hey, w- w- what's he been in? What have I seen? Why don't I recognize him? But I haven't seen him in anything else. So he's instantly impressive to me as a character and uh, as are quite a few of the ensemble cast, quite good as well. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it.
1: So after uh, The Intolerables, the movie that he made that, that made him, you know, a big, big star, he started out as a comedian, and you can feel that lightness in him. For a guy who is so big, I forget how tall he is, six-something.
2: Six-two.
1: Six-two. And he's a bloke. I mean, he's 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 very – he's got a – Yeah, but a very powerful body, and he's uh, half Senegalese, and I think his mom was from Mauritania or something. Anyway, he's black. Mauritius. Mauritius, yes, yes. Uh, When I first saw the one sheet, when I first saw the poster for the Netflix show, I I, at first glance I thought it was Luther because there was a black, you know, a, a black guy. One word starts with an L. L-U. And then I quickly saw that it was Omar Sy, and this is a Netflix original French language series. And, you know, a lot of Americans kind of don't like to watch subtitles, but I really encourage you to just put that aside and watch it without dubbing and with the subtitles cuz you quickly don't even realize you're reading it anymore and so much of it you still know what they're saying even even my rudimentary third year French you know I was amazed at how many verbs and such that I recognized and I didn't you know have to read all that much but anyway I thought it was delightful it's kind of this Ocean's Eleven vibe meets a bit of uh, Sherlock Holmes meets a bit of Scarlet Pimpernel. It's very slick. It, this is not a down and gritty Parisian cop show. It's a bit of a fairy tale. I just, I, I, it hit me right where I needed to be hit. He's really remarkable for such a big guy. And I said he has a lightness. I was trying to think of how to describe his face because it's very just... Affable is just very pleasant. There's something about him that just makes you feel so light. And and it is kind of a light caper heist kind of a script, but there is some darkness to it. There is some, you know, real guts to it. And um he's just wonderful. Just charismatic. You buy him in all you would buy him as a great father, you buy him as kind of a rakish rapscallion Well, I wouldn't um, call
3: him a great father.
1: A loving father, a connected father.
3: But I wouldn't even call him, he's an absent father. I mean, like she calls him, the ex-wife like calls him out. Are you going to be there? This kind of gets to the heart of like the issues that I have with like the structure of story. We don't get enough of like how he came to be, not until later, like the personal stuff like with the ex-wife or, you know, the, the mother of his child. But we don't get enough of like what makes him skilled at what he does. We just kind of like, I mean, he says he's a lone wolf. We're asked to make that assumption that he is skilled. Whereas if you look at movies like The Stain, if you look at movies like Ocean's Eleven, they have expertise. Like Ocean has expertise by virtue of... The people that s- he surrounds himself with who validate his expertise. Paul Newman's character, Henry Gondorf, we don't know much about his backstory, but we know from the people that he gathers to him that he has expertise and that they have expertise. With the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond he is a lone wolf, but we see in the process of his story how he acquires his knowledge, how he acquires his wealth. We have none of that. With Lupin. Yeah, we have
1: tons of that. No. have tons of that. He has a friend. He has he has a he friend has- that helps him here, and he's got and he. How did he? Uses he how it did it he acquire?
3: To- how did he acquire his like pickpocket skills? How did he acquire his thieving skills from reading a book?
1: Yes, they say that very clearly. That he got. That's that's the story. That enough. is the whole thing. That he has a handbook.
3: I can read Sherlock. I can read Sherlock Holmes. That doesn't make me a deductive detective.
1: <laughs> okay. This is the part of the fantasy that he was able to read this series of books and study them like maps and study them like texts and through trial and error since he was 14 years old and left on his own, that he's developed this. He's developed these skills. And in the
3: span of so in the span of two weeks, from the time that he discovers that the necklace is going to be auctioned, he creates a plan to rob the Louvre in two weeks. Yeah. That's the timeline. Yeah, and
1: in the span of how long? Okay, so you ridiculous. believe that and you believe Ocean can rob three casinos. And I mean, come on. It's all fantasy.
3: At least I see more of the process by which that occurs. I see the planning. I see like that they design and construct like the vault. I see those things.
1: Why don't we go through it? So anyway, so we don't know why this series is called Le Pan until, until much, much later. But we, we start off and the camera work is so interesting. You have a lot of swirls and a lot the, a lot of the camera work is very circular. It just kind of spins you around this world. Um, and it, it's a very idealized Look at Paris and you see this museum after hours and I, maybe because I'm so addicted to museums. I mean, it's just my, my happy place is in a museum. Just to think of kicking around in the Louvre after hours, being able to walk right up to the Mona Lisa. I mean, it's just a very romantic um, mise en scene to 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 watch these custodians come in and you see this guy and he's a custodian he's kind of this hulking kind of big guy with his his skull cap on coming in and you know something is up just he's just way too charismatic compared to all of the other schlubs who are cleaning the Louvre and so you kind of feel like something's up but just his face how he's enjoying looking at the mona lisa and how he's you know looking at the necklace and to your point Brian he we find out later that he that he took the job in the first place for the necklace. It's not like he goes to work there. Yeah.
3: So I understand. But I mean, from the time that he discovers that it's going to be auctioned, he arranges to get himself hired there. Plus he finds three accomplices that he has no other connection to other than he chances upon them. We don't know how he meets them. He simply goes there to borrow money.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you're so angry, Brian. I mean, it's it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's
2: hey, Lisa, not- you did tell Brian this is not a documentary, right? Yeah, <laughs> but the story still
3: has to make sense. The story still has to make sense, and I, I, I mean, and as an audience member, and, and I can go with Ocean's Eleven. I can go with Ocean's Eleven. I understand that it's ridiculous, but it's like, but there's enough plot points that I can hang my hat on as an audience member that it makes sense, that I can uh, can follow those plot lines. There's there's nothing like that in the first episode.
1: There was to me. I absolutely I absolutely think there was. And I love, you don't really kind of know what's going on in the beginning. You see him kind of eyeballing the necklace. You, you get the sense that something's going to happen. But yeah, go ahead, Dean.
2: Brian, you're right about it just being fantastical and I mean that word fantastical not fantastic right so it's it's a little bit unrealistic but it's as Lisa said the camera works romantic everything's romantic about this right he's got this quixotic um, mission to try and clear his dad's name uh so from the get-go it's like that and I don't mind that we are asked to assume- it's, it's, actually it's not it's not to it's not to redeem his father's name
3: it's not until he discovers that that the that the necklace was left intact he was under the impression that it was that they pieced it all together he was there just to initially just to steal the necklace and to sell it for millions it wasn't until like second episode where his Friend said, "No, this wasn't taken apart ever." That's when he begins to think, like, because he hasn't given his father a second thought for twenty-five years.
1: And we'll, and we find out why um, much later. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Dean. What you were saying?
2: Oh yes. Uh, so, so the idea, uh, what I liked about it was that he is unrealistically always one step ahead of his pursuers or his adversaries, but he's also one step ahead of us because it's not a who done it, or a how done it. It's a how is he going to get out of this, you know, in various <laughs> right, situations? Right. It's like, well, he's trapped. He's How can he get away from this? But he does. And, you know, it's obviously tweaked Brian for his um, sense of realism, but you kind of know what you're getting off the get-go. As you said, Lisa, the camera works very glossy. Some of the shots reminded me of stuff um, out of sight. Who directed out of sight? Ciderberg.
1: Yeah it, yeah, it, Steven, it was very well, yeah, yeah
2: very very soft focus and really romantic and a lot of that goes on and I just visually I was happy to just lay back and let it wash over me
1: guys. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go over and give us a positive six-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Plus, if you know someone who would like the show, please send them a link. Sharing is caring. And now back to the show. Yeah, maybe because I haven't traveled in so long. Seeing this lens of Paris. Oh man, I just so you go from seeing this guy, you don't know anything about him, you just know he's a custodian. Now he meets he's meeting in a cafe with this woman who just knows him inside out. She's just kind of sizing him up. You sense the history, and it seems like he she's either his ex-wife or whatever, they have a kid together. There's this, you know, this little detail that as they're talking, he's he's trying to convince her Yep, you know, things are going to change. I'm going to change. And he's kind of folding the receipt. She just has his number. She's just like, okay, can you just try at least to come and see your son, you know, and not let him down this time. But there isn't that animosity in the scene. There's just sort of this interesting ease between them. It's like she's not asking him for money. She's not nagging at him. She's looking at him still. Just somebody who really knows him. And he hands her this big wad of money, and she doesn't want to keep it. But later when she leaves, she you realize that somehow he's slipped the money into her pocket, and the little receipt has turned into this little flower, this little poppy that he's made for her. So you start to get a little sense that he's tricky. He's got these little tricks up his sleeve. And I love that cafe. I wanted to just... <laughs> transport myself into that cafe immediately. So, yeah, so the next scene is where he goes to assemble this motley crew of a muscle head, kind of a sly guy, and this scrawny kid who's going to be kind of the baby driver of the group. Uh, and I was like, well, why did he give her the money if he owed the money? And I was like, and you find out later... Why all this goes down He tells this motley crew Like okay This is what we're gonna do I owe you all this money But you're gonna be paid Many many times over By stealing this necklace And so I thought It was very clever How they talk about The planning of the heist While showing them Preparing to do it And I think that's That's right out of Ocean's Eleven I feel like I've I can hear Danny Ocean Saying okay Well this is how It's gonna go And you're gonna do this And seeing Brad Pitt Go through the motions Of trying to plan All of the little arms That have to come together
3: And I guess this is my point. I mean, those are crew guys that he's worked with, that he knows their value. He knows their skills. He brings them on for a purpose. These guys are just loan shark people who, how does he know that they will be able to execute the plan? I don't know like what his connection to them is. How does he know that he can pull this off with them? That's kind of a plot point that I have a problem with. I mean, the fantastical quality of it, fine. Robbing three casinos or whatever, yeah, it can't be done. I get it. Ocean's Eleven is fantastical. Even in this fantastical world, there is a logic that plays out with Ocean's Eleven. And there's not a logic that plays out in this world. That's my only point. You know, I mean, Aristotle talks about story, like there are components to a story. And I'm saying, like, there in later episodes, we see more of like how he. Behaves in the world that gives us a better sense of him that should have been done earlier on. They put focus on issues of story, on story issues that I think are less important. There are things like, as an example, so the, the dying guy in the prison, they have an exchange of like two sentences. And then the next time they see each other, it's like they're old, fast friends. We haven't seen enough of an interaction between them to justify this kind of like. Would you give this to this diamond to, or make my wife smile or whatever? It's just, it's like they're trying to stuff like a thousand pounds of stuffing into a 15 pound turkey.
1: And I know I know we're, we're skipping ahead by mentioning all that. But, you know, I think maybe, Ryan, when you mentioned that, I've been thinking about some of the other French films and French series that I've seen. And for example, like Blue is the Warmest Color and other things. And the storylines do come together very Quickly, and not everything is explained, and you kind of do have like jump jump cuts through storylines that maybe we're just not as familiar with, or we're just not as accepting of. But I completely accepted it because it does. He, you do go back, and you do get to know how his his real plan, what his real plan entailed later. There are revelations that, that get lifted up to get closer to explaining. But yeah, it's not going to be very similitude, you know, oddly enough, because Moliere was French, uh, but there's not going to be all of the very of time, place, action, and all that stuff. And I'm not
3: saying that I need everything painted in, but my point is there's not enough here for me to hang my hat on to say like, that I buy it. That's my only point.
1: Okay, well that's not enough for you. It was it was plenty for me. I love meeting this motley crew. I love the scrawny kid doing the, the video games and thinking, oh, I'm gonna be the getaway driver and um all the, the dumb Things that he that he does to mess up the plan. But anyway, so then we have a flashback that goes back to kind of a, a sepia tone to the cinematography, almost like a clay color, kind of like a terracotta color. Um, and you have a flashback to 1995 and you see Asan, this is Omar Sy's character, as a kid with his dad in the rain. You know, they set it up pretty quickly that... His father is a chauffeur and kind of a, you know, a handyman kind of a guy. And they don't have the mom's not around. Mom's not in the picture. And you see this very most beautiful face on um, this actor. I'm not sure if he's a Senegalese actor or not, but he's just got the most beautiful warm face, and he's the loveliest man. And I immediately start worrying about his safety. Like, you just know something is going to happen to this dad as he's in the rain with his son, and he's trying to help a white woman who's having trouble with her car and she's immediately afraid of him and all this there's just such this sense of foreboding as he tries to help her and then you realize that it's his actually his employer's wife and he's a chauffeur for their family and she calls him she says to the son your father is a gentleman and that really pleases the son he he really smiles and, and that really kind of hits him and they, and they use the english word they you know gentleman
3: did anybody wonder why he described the family as presumptuous
1: Mm, yeah, I wonder what the if that translates the same to us as it does because they they did use presumptuous and I just took it to mean a different way of saying entitled. See,
2: you know that raises the topic of race in this, which of course it's just laced throughout. The original series of books was written by Maurice Leblanc, and of course Leblanc means the white. And then you've got you know the leading characters in here being played by black guys, a lot of them, but which reflects French society today as well. So whether that was calculated that way or not, I'm not sure, especially in the flashbacks when Omar's character goes to, Hassan goes to the rich private school that he finds out later has been paid for by a wealthy donor and the kids are are aggressive and and violent and insulting and, oh, I didn't know they let the cleaners in here. So race is is a common theme throughout. And of course, you've got the repeating motif of fathers and sons as well, Uh, Hassan's father and then and asan being a father as well and, and what you were saying before Lisa, to brian about european movies being a bit different to american movies and you guys youtube in particular are embedded in the american movie industry they are very different uh, as a someone sitting outside of both of those cultures as an australian th- there's a certain amount of whimsy that that is inherent to a lot of um european films that you just wouldn't find coming out of out of Hollywood generally or out, out of American-made films, and particularly the music in this. I don't know if you know, if either of you noticed, but it was quite, so I've already used the word whimsy, it's a very whimsical score. It's not terribly dramatic. It's often got a quite a bit of a lightness to it, and Lisa, you spoke about the lightness of the movement and the character of, uh, of Asan. The music tracks along with that, so it's a totally, not a totally different, but it is, it's like the same thing but done from a different angle. And I just, I, I, I liked it. I really dug it.
1: Yeah, it I good. just kept thinking back to blue is the warmest color on, and how sort of some scenes are incomplete, you know, and you have to, you definitely have to fill in the blanks. But anyway, so we come back, and so now there's this plan, which these, knuckleheads are gonna pose as custodians asan has pickpocketed all of these uh security cards for them to have and he but he's they're gonna be underground getting ready to heist the uh, necklace that's going to be up for auction and he's up top and so now he's transforms he steps out of this SUV limo thing and now he is in the Armani suit and you know the shoulders back the swagger the smile the presence I loved wondering what What's going to happen? And again, there's just a lot of swirling movement when you're inside the Louvre as they're sitting down, as they're starting to start the auction. And you're like, you know, what is it about this necklace? Is there something else there? And indeed there is, because you have a flashback again to the father cleaning the bookshelf and the employer coming in and yelling at him and being so mean to him and the the nice wife saying, I'm sorry about my husband yelling at you. Why don't you pick a book? This fabulous library of books. And he picks the book. Arsène. Is it Arsène? Arsène Lupin. Which I'd never heard of these books, but apparently they they really are a touchstone in France. Um, I- They've
2: remade this like, so many times because it was released around the turn of the century. So it's been redone in so many ways within France and even uh, I don't know if you guys saw this but it was re- redone in 1971 by Miyazaki of studio Ghibli so there's a there's a 1971 animated version of this done uh, by uh, uh, Miyazaki which is trippy. <laughs> Arsène Lupin is a very famous French hero. You read Lupin at school like you would read Victor Hugo in France. Arsène Lupin is a set of books. It's something that people love. The kind of gentleman burglar who is a charismatic thief, he'll steal diamonds, he'll rob galleries, he's there one minute, gone the next, style. Omar Syed plays someone who loves Arsène Lupin. Through this book, he learned life, he learned relationships, he learned to be the smartest man in the room, and he's going to use all these books as a methodology to avenge his father.
1: It's a character that that I obviously wouldn't know about, but it's sort of like a Sherlock Holmes touchstone for the French, so yeah. Well, I should mention that this series, this Lupin Netflix series was uh, created by George Kay, who I f- realize wrote on Criminal UK, Criminal France, Criminal Germany, Killing Eve, The Hour, a bunch of really great British series. So he's, you know, he's very comfortable in in this world, and it seems like he's just having a whole lot of fun with it. Um, so we, we we have a couple of more flashbacks as we sort of are filling out this this life that young Assan. And so what we realize is that the auction, the lore of the necklace. So it was something that originally was given to Marie Antoinette. It's stolen, and then or or then it's given to by Napoleon to Josephine, and then it's stolen, and it shows up in the third Reich So there's this whole history in this necklace. And so everyone is really interested to see who gets it. But that's not why Ahsan is so interested in it. And it's probably not only just because of the money, but the necklace has eventually been bought by the Pellegrini family, the family that his father had worked for and the daughter, Juliette. This very chic daughter of Pellegrini has it around her neck and she's there to auction it off. And then you have a flashback to Asan. oh God, getting into the pool with her. And I just, I just, my blood went cold when she was like, you know, can Black swim and come swim to me for a kiss? I mean, oh, it it was, it was just very, very creepy. Yeah. And again, you have this sense like something bad is going to happen. This can't be a good thing. You know, something is going to happen to this boy and his father. It's just, just a matter of time. Yeah, so then there's this whole bid back and forth as he starts to bid and you realize, wait, h- okay, how did he... How can he bid on this? Well, he's created some sort of backstop, some sort of profile that has allowed him to, to get into the auction, and the auctioneers think that he's this businessman. Interesting, his profile says that he's American. I don't know why it says that, but um, says that he's this some kind of American billionaire. And so he wins the auction, but and again, he's just light, he's confident, and then he goes down into the basement to take possession of... The necklace, and then you have this slight moment when the this great crossover moment where the the necklace is in the safe and it's being opened up for him to take possession of it, and that's the one moment that his face gets just absolutely quiet and intense when the safe is being opened and then there's a crossfade and it's a flashback to the Pellegrini safe being opened and the necklace being gone and of course his poor father is is accused of of being the culprit and he's taken away and I, I mean I have to say I definitely saw that coming and you definitely get the sense that this is one of these insurance scams and, and all of that so you see that you know why this necklace is is so important to the character. We're starting to get into the background of this character, Asan, that oh, this is what kills me. So he's left all by himself because his his dad is sent to prison. He's all on his own. He's trying to, he doesn't have a mom. He doesn't have anybody to take care of. And he's trying to just keep going. And it's it seems like it's the book that is helping him. The book somehow he, he can't let go of that when, when he has to vacate the apartment that he and his father shared. Wait, wait um, before
3: we get before we get to that point, so there's the the flashback. Did anybody notice in the in the flashback when he goes to visit his father in prison? There's somebody who stops and looks at him through the window.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then
3: we cut to yeah. we cut to then know- his father in his cell hung. It, it wasn't until I went back and watched episode one again today that I made that connection.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Right. And it's a, that was it's a, a pretty big, big I mean, big I knew one. that
1: there was something, I mean, that was a pretty big giveaway.
3: Here's the thing, like with his father, like the fact, like just kind of u- using the word presumptuous, but the gloves picking that book, we don't know like, the fact that his fingerprints were all over the safe. So, and I guess this mm-hmm. is my point. Like if, like my feeling was, especially as we saw more of, as we saw the story evolve through the, the five episodes, like his father before he became a chauffeur was a thief. He picked that collection of stories for his son for his birthday because he was a thief and wanted him to kind of like have that, that that was a kind of connection for them. And that, that for me, it's a story thing that the writers would have to come up with and I'm kind of rewriting their story. But if I had seen more of, son, this is you know, like the sleight of hand. This is how, because we see as a kid after his father's dead and he's sent off to the, uh, I think it's the the foster care when he picks the, the guy's pocket of the Zippo, right? That's an advanced move. He had to have gotten that from somebody. And so like the fact of the gloves with his dad in the book being gifted to him, like if we had seen more of his, his father kind of instructing him, his expertise would have landed better for me. But it's like, he's just kind of like birth. He's out of the womb, like a master thief. And there's, and listen, there's, you know, I mean, we've got, we have plenty of, we have plenty mm-hmm. of examples in popular culture of like the Superman, James Bond, they can do anything. They don't die, all of that. But again, it's, it is the people that surround bond who invest in bond as a figure a, a man who can do everything those are the that's how we know that he is something a cut above not just his actions that's what i just wanted to see more of you know like how he came to acquire those skills
2: Hmm. actually yeah that makes so now that you've said that brian as you, uh, lisa said he, you described him as a lone wolf character and Brian that's the problem with that structure isn't it if he's a lone wolf then he sort of exists in this vacuum and he's got all these superpowers of pickpocketing and 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 disguise and you know all of
3: But that's where the flashback comes in you know that's where we get that's where we get the opportunity to kind of like see him in a previous life i mean like when we see how he robs the woman later on like that's fantastic that is that says everything about a character about his character. He's not a kind of Robin Hood figure, right? He's not, he's not robbing the rich to feed the poor. He's robbing the rich to feed himself. And on top of that, he is, you know, absent for his girlfriend. He's eventually going to be absent for his son. You know what I mean? So he's not this kind of one-dimensional kind of figure he is a flawed human being who has this particular set of skills which is is admirable that the writers i mean it is a it is a credit to him as a performer that he remains so very likable and so very charismatic while also being like kind of a deadbeat dad we see him redeeming himself but his his previous history what we don't see is him just kind of not being around
1: yeah i can believe that as a Black kid having to be in whatever it was, boarding school or whatever, that he, you'd have to develop some pretty good self defense techniques to survive. You know, you'd have to get probably. Pretty savvy, pretty quickly. So, I, I mean, for me, I, I kind of bought that. But it's so funny because I don't know what it says about me. But the more that it looked like the dad was innocent of the crime, the more I was like, "Oh, he's totally guilty." Because I'm just, I, I'm, you know, we're just so savvy about these plots.
3: And there was, it so, wasn't there something. There was something. He makes a point of calling out to Mrs. Pellegrini as he's being dragged away by the police. He's like, "You have to help me, Mrs. Pellegrini. Like he seeks. Her and I didn't notice it the first go around. The second go around today, it's like, why would she commit to the young boy's education? What manner of guilt would drive that? I mean, I think that. I mean, I think we're in season two or three or whatever. We're going to get a significant bait and switch in terms of who we perceive to be the real bad. I'm saying Mr. Pellegrini is a bad guy. He's clearly a bad guy. But the crime, the original crime of that necklace. I think is definitely smoke and mirrors.
1: Right, right, right. Um, so just back to the present. So they so um I don't know what the plan was, but I don't I don't know if the plan goes right, but the crew beats up Asan to 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 steal the necklace, and that must have been the plan, so he's not suspected as being, I mean, this seems like it's a, it's a trope that that happens where there's the inside guy and then they're beaten up. So they don't look like they were part of the, of the heist, but they're, but they kind of are double crossing him. I was a little confused. Like were they supposed to beat him up or not supposed to beat him up or whatever.
3: I But I I think that's again, he's Superman and he's anticipating that they'll double cross him.
1: Right. I thought it was a spectacular, Getaway with baby driver in this red Ferrari or whatever the fuck the car was, you know, driving and crashing into that iconic glass ceiling. I was like, that's pretty cool. I loved it. I thought it was awesome.
3: Y'all mentioned the music earlier. There's one particular theme in the show that felt like it was ripped right out of uh Sherlock. That kind of plinky, the kind of jangly, like it's not the main theme, but kind of like their their B-roll kind of theme. I looked, I tried to find the musician to see if they were one and the same, but I, I didn't find it, so.
1: So the rest of the episode is just now we go we go two weeks back in time, as Brian says, and you kind of see all of the pieces being put into place, how he creates the profile of the fancy auctioneer, um, how he switches the necklace so that he actually does get the real necklace and the fake one is the one that the police think that they have. And You have this one cop who just happens to have read all of the arsene lupin stories and just immediately recognizes oh this see it sounds like the necklace heist and he pick he goes to pick up his son uh, from his wife and i was just, just thinking oh my god this is the most amicable divorce that i've ever seen and this the kid i loved the casting of the kid um i don't think he's ever done anything else his name is etan shimon and uh, just a wonderful young actor, just so natural and so kind of awkward and kind of you know rolling his eyes at his parents. Um, but I, I but I love that triangle. I mean I don't know maybe in France things are much more civilized. But it just seemed like um, I, I just enjoyed that relationship where the the woman wasn't just made into this you know nagging. And I
3: thought the casting older to younger that casting was great across the board <gasps> yeah. from Dumont to yeah. everybody, like their younger selves and their older selves. Maybe Claire for me was a little, uh, but I could still see like the resemblance, but like Julieta, like they were all really spot on between, you know, casting for past selves to present selves it was great.
1: Right, right. Um, at the very end, it's just he give he, as a gift, he gives his son, um, Raoul, the the book uh, with all of his little bookmarks and, you know, passing along all of his secrets to his son. So I, for me, it's just at the end of the first uh, episode, It just something felt very classic about it. Like I've just sort of seen a little fairy tale, a little bit of glitter, a little bit of, of shine. And it just, I don't know, it just, for me, it put me in just a fantastic mood. And the nice thing is, is that the boys are studying French. And so we, so I made them watch the whole series with me and it was really fun to just blitz through. I think there's only five episodes in this season. They're only 45 minutes each. So I, I had a great time with it. And, you know, the rest of the episodes, I mean, it is a little silly that he has these other disguises that he in no way disguises him. <laughs> you know, he just like puts on an orange hat and some glasses and he's the IT guy, you know.
2: But, but that scene with the scene where he's where when he's on television later on and and the cops sitting back and he's got the photo and he literally sticks the photo beside the, the monitor and he's looking backwards and forwards, going, Oh my god, it's the same guy. It's like
3: the well, captain. You know. Um when I you know again, I watched the, the first episode again today, and it's like he looks at him dead in the eye as he's being released, right? After the heist. And then later on, there's a an artist rendering that looks exactly like him, that he doesn't place at all. Like, I, I will say the the police in this series are grossly incompetent, like <laughs> across the board. They're like the most moronic people <laughs> and the
2: most moronic police force that I've ever seen. It's the home of Inspector Cluse O'Brien. Come on, it's probably, uh, you know, it's probably, actually, there's, speaking of that, the scene where, uh, later on, there's a scene where one of the characters Goes into his home and after he discovers that uh, that it's been totally wired up, there's fifteen or thirteen cameras in there. And he's running through the house and he just looks up and spots every single one of them and rips all 13 cameras out within five seconds. And you go, what, you didn't notice that before? How long have you lived in the house? What's going on? And
3: I think this is one of the problems of at least the structure of the episode time-wise. Every episode is 45 minutes. And if they had followed more of a, and again, it's budgetary. This is just my own idea. If they had extended out and done like a Sherlock style time, every episode of Sherlock is like an hour and a half. If they had extended it to an hour and a half each episode, then you get, because right now, like you say, he's gotta like find, or he's gonna look up and, oh, look, it's very convenient. There's a a series of conveniences. I think if they had had given the character and the story more time,
2: without losing the fantastical quality of it.
3: I think that you would lose those things. You would have more time to discover, like the characters discover those
2: things. That's an interesting point, Brian, because this is in the middle of 45 minutes. As you said, your Sherlock's are 90 or whatever. And then you look at something like Mr. Inbetween, which is 25 minutes, and yet it manages the, the writing in that. I mean, they're totally different not to be compared, but you're saying, ah, oh, but if they just gave it more time and then you think, yep, I can see that working with the Sherlock model. And then there's another model over here that works but the writing's got to be super, super honed as, as we, as we've all well, and, yeah, and again, discussed about Mr. Mr. In-between.
3: In-Between is not fantastical. Sherlock. No, not at all. Sherlock is absolutely fantastical. Like there is yes. not a human being that could do what Sherlock Holmes does, but because they kind of give it the time and the care, right. And like, and they have the visual, the visual component of like how he piece, how his brain works, which is a fantastic convention, but they give it the time. It like, it does reside in a kind of reality, a Sherlock reality that wouldn't reside in our real world, but it does It does make sense in that world, you know, but it's because they've given it the kind of space to like show us, you know what I mean? Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. But I do think they reuse some of the same territory in Lupin that you. I feel like I've seen before. I feel like I've seen that scene where he's dressed as the food delivery guy all in orange and they can't. They and they start to chase him, but then a million other food delivery guys arrive. I feel like I've seen that somewhere. Uh, that and I that don't looks f- like
2: classic f- French farce, like Tati or something, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. just a. I took it as a homage to that sort of stuff.
1: Maybe that's what it is. Mm. Um, so, I mean, every episode has a trick like that, has some kind of um, thing that he that he plays from his toolkit, and, and definitely there's so much Swiss cheese. You do have to kind of squint you know i definitely found myself going okay <laughs> you know beggar's belief
3: episode 5 for me was by far the most satisfying episode of all of them because we see him in his expertise we see you know the relationship with the girlfriend at the time but we see how those things are informing no, the, I think, the I, time I think, now. I think
2: the um when she's when she's with the therapist mm-hmm. um the therapist mentions that that they never got there.
3: yeah Or she could walk away. I mean, Mm. like at any time because, yeah, they're Mm. not married, no kids, whatever.
2: Uh, Actually, Brian, uh, since we just popped forward into Ep5, the the scene, and again, to your point, the scene where he gets off the train, and we won't spoil anything, but uh, the police are seemingly about to arrest him. They're surrounded with guns drawn and they take away another guy. But as you said, he looks exactly like. I mean, he's not in disguise at that point. He's, he looks exactly like who he is. And the police are going to get these two guys and they're not going to take, they would take them both. They're, you're both coming here to yeah. sort out who right, you are, right. right? Not even, they don't even ask him for and ID. And the way, I mean,
3: the way I looked at it, like it's the local police, you know, it, it wasn't the, the Paris police.
2: Yeah. It it all
3: stretches rather thin. Yeah. You know. Absolutely.
1: You know, Absolutely. But for me I just I just love the ride and I think it's all about the casting for me. In in this case that's what saved it for me because if you don't love Omar Sy, for me he just completely carries it and no matter what scene he's doing, I just something about his face, I just love it. I just I, I, it's not like he's this chiseled jaw. I mean, he's not like I want to fuck him, like I want to fuck Idris Elba. <laughs> but there's something about him that is so kind and boyish Playful. and playful and optimistic and maybe i just really needed to see that because luther if you watch you know the luther series with idris alpha it's so dark and he's so twisted and he's so damaged and it's just so nice to see i don't know if he's an anti-hero i'm not sure what you would call him but but just again this buoyancy well it's left the season is left with a pretty big cliffhanger So we'll see what happens. We'll see how it moves forward. And, you know, if the writing can get a little more complex, if the gears can can connect a little bit. A little bit better.
3: I think they're moving in that direction if episode five is is any indication. You know, we'll see.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I I, I would like to, I tried to find the casting story behind it, whether they made this with him in mind because he had such cachet. You know, he was in Jurassic World and X-Men and stuff like that. You know, if, if that allowed him to have them build this for him or or kind of how, how it all came together, I wasn't able to find that.
3: Here's my feeling. I feel like Europe and the UK have been far more progressive in terms of their colorblind casting. It feels like it's still like we're still in our infancy here in the States. Like it still feels kind of ham handed at times. Um, Whereas when I look at BBC programming or European programming, it's much more integrated. It's not to say that they don't have racial strife and racial issues. Of course they do. But in terms of their entertainment, it's like, far more progressive. So I, I wouldn't have any I wouldn't doubt at all that they envisioned him in the in the role and kind of built around him.
1: Yeah, I think the one thing I did hear him say in an interview that if he were British he would have been James Bond, but since he's French, he gets to be Lupin. So um I'm so glad that he is and he's and, and this thing has just killed it on Netflix. I mean it is just it is crushing uh, the it's, Queen's it's Gambit. It's the biggest thing and,
2: they've had, isn't yeah, it? You know. 70 million. 70 million households, I think, in, since it was released on the 8th. So, yeah, bigger than Bridgerton, Which bigger than the Queen's in, Gambit. In,
1: so in, I simple. love that, that something like this is getting watched. It's fantastic.
2: Bigger even than your mummy porn on Bridgerton, Lisa. Wow.
1: <laughs> Why do you call that mommy porn? Mommy
2: porn. I was, th- th- not th- f-
1: I was not a fan of Bridgerton, by the way. I would not make either of you sit through that.
2: Oh, good. You gave that a (laughs) wrap. Oh, excuse me. You gave that a big thumbs up on our on our end of year thing. You
1: did. No, I said I wanted to see it. I didn't say that I liked it. No, 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 no. In fact, I called my sister after, and I and I, my sister, and I. No, I I love the bodice and and you know corset stuff. All right, but I sit corrected. I had, some, I I had corrected. some problems with it. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, okay, mes amis, uh, we're going to say au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to our coverage of Lupin. And I hope you watch it. I hope you enjoy it. And please leave us a message on our answering machine. So and tell me how to correctly pronounce casting director in French. <laughs> Go ahead. What is it? Speak So go to the
2: website, killercastingpod.com. Click on the contact and you'll see a little button there and you can just record and speak into your uh, magic box. And through the wonders of the internet, we get an email with your voice and we'll pop you in the pod. Speaking of which, let's listen to one that we got just today.
1: Uh, My name is Ren, and I am recommending that you guys check out Casa de Papel, which is also known as Money Heist. It is incredible. It is about uh, the mint in Spain being taken over, and it is some of the best storytelling and acting I have ever seen.
2: Okay. Well, there you go. Thank you very much uh, for that one, Ren. We appreciate that. And certainly uh, that is a great recommendation and another European one as well. Money Heist is available on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet, but I have seen the trailer and I hear nothing but good things about it. So um, thank you, Ren. We will jump into that.
1: I've also heard you things about call your agent or call my agent or call the agent, whatever. Call the agent, is. I think. Call the, call the it's agent. French.
2: It's another French one. And mm-hmm. In fact, I just yep. stumbled across today a list. I think it was the top 11 European stuff to binge on. So I'll put that in the show notes. I just stumbled across a documentary series that
3: Netflix premiered this year, uh, The History of Curse Words.
1: Oh, oh, is yeah. this the Nicolas Cage
0: one?
3: Yeah, with Nick Cage. How Park. is yeah. it? I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. I, I want to I watch it. And I, I immediately thought of you guys because of my proclivity for profanity. Love it. <laughs> I mean, want to cool. give it a – I watched the trailer and it looks hilarious. Nick Cage is like taking the piss out of it. He's hilarious. He's got a great hairpiece. It's really <laughs> remarkable.
2: Full head of hair.
1: Well, let's cover it. Let's cover Are you it. telling
2: us they didn't, they didn't interview you for this, Brian? That's incredible.
1: Well, we will cover it because there's nothing like a good fucking swear word in my book. All right. Well, this is Killer Casting signing off.
3: Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by Lisa Zambetti, audio engineering by Dean Laffin. Logo art by April Laffin, website and Big Fat Opinions courtesy of me, Brian Allen Hill.